The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. We are coming to you from uh, Titanic Belfast. Uh, Discover Northern Ireland are our hosts and uh, we have been made feel very welcome. While I'm here, Minister for Justice and Minister for Further and Higher Education, Research, Innovation and Science, Finnegal LTD for Wicklow, is in our Dublin studio. Minister Simon Harris, good morning. Good morning, Pat. Now, uh, we wanted to talk to you and we will talk to you principally about the new recruitment campaign for Angarda Siakona, which uh, opens for applications this very day. Uh, we'll do that in a moment. But first of all, perhaps you can update us on the, the upgrading of the investigation into the disappearance of Annie McCarrick into a murder investigation. What new information do the Gardaí have? Yes, indeed. A very, a very significant development from the Gardaí today. They have decided, um, after quite a lot uh, of work and collating thousands of documents, taking many, many statements and indeed uh, meeting Annie McCarrick's uh, mother, Nancy, in New York, they have decided that it is now time to reclassify what had been a missing persons investigation as a full murder investigation. And the Gardaí are asking people today to come forward with any information they can. They're particularly looking to speak to any person who met, spoke with or indeed had any interaction with Annie on the 26th of March 1993 or since then. They were clear that they believe that there are people who have information um, about Annie, about her murder on or around that date, who haven't yet spoken to Gardaí or indeed may have spoken to Gardaí previously but may have not been in a position to tell them everything they knew at that time. And also, Pat, um, today they're also asking for any person who has information on a large brown handbag which it's believed that Annie was in possession of uh, when she went missing. They'd like to speak to them. They've also obviously published uh, photographs of Annie, including a photograph depicting uh, the bag as well. So anybody who has any information, no matter how small, uh, it could be extremely important. Annie's dad, John, died not knowing what happened um, to his daughter. Um, her mother, Nancy, has absolutely every right and need to know and really urging people. I know it's it's 30 years on, but really urging people uh, to come forward with any information they possibly can. And let's try bring some closure, truth and justice um, to this horrific murder. Yeah, I mean, people might think it's a bit tardy, 30 years on, to decide that Annie McCarrick is no longer simply a missing person, but is a murder victim. Everybody had concluded that she was victim to foul play many, many years ago. What has taken the Gardaí so long? Yeah, no, look, I'd quite frankly see it as the opposite of tardy. I'd see it as a very clear message from Angarda Siakona that no matter how much time has elapsed, no matter how long ago a murder or an injustice has taken place, the Gardaí will never give up on their quest for truth or justice. And certainly during the 30 years of that investigation, I mean, I believe they've collated in excess of 5,000 documents. They've taken more than 300 statements. They've retained a number of exhibits. Um, and look, I'm very confident that the the Gardaí are, 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 are always have a good understanding of when the time is right. And it's important that they act within that, within that window. Um, and, that, and that's exactly what they're doing. And as I say, they've had engagement uh, with Annie's mother, um, Nancy, as well. So we're really urging anybody now to come forward um, to the investigating team at Irish Town Garda Station or indeed your local Garda Station or indeed the Garda confidential telephone line, which is 1800 666 Just because lots of time has elapsed doesn't in any way lessen the right that Annie and her family have for justice and truth. Um, it's different, I suppose, to the investigation into the Kerry Babies uh, case where arrests have been made, and I know uh, you can't talk much about that, but it would appear that the arrests were made on the basis of some sort of breakthrough 
and we really don't have a breakthrough in the Annie McCarrick case. We're looking for more uh, evidence, more help, but there is a breakthrough in the case of the Kerry babies. I think we've seen a very significant um, development in terms of the Kerry, the Kerry babies and indeed the, the murder of baby John. Um, I mean, this was... This was the most horrific um, moment in time. It's something that has a, had a real impact on the people of Carrasavine, on the people of Kerry, and indeed on the people of Ireland. You saw the murder of of a baby, an innocent baby, just days old. And again, just because lots of time has elapsed, cannot in any way lessen the right that baby John has for justice and the importance of establishing the truth. And while again, this is a very ongoing and very live investigation, the Gardaí and myself are appealing for anybody with any information to please come, please, please come forward. And, and look, I'm also very conscious that, um, and indeed I'm sure you will be from this, from covering maybe and being aware of these stories at the time, how difficult and defining a social moment this was um, in Ireland as well and how horrifically, um, appallingly and unacceptably Joanne Hayes was treated. And of course, I'm thinking of Joanne uh, today. It was a time that highlighted perhaps deep, deep biases uh, that existed in our system at the time. And I think of Joanne today. Yeah. And she got her apology, but only, as I mentioned earlier on the programme, during the, the first tenure of uh, Leo Radker as Taoiseach. So it took an awful long time for the state and the then acting Garda Commissioner to issue that uh, much-deserved and formal apology on behalf of uh, both the Garda and the state. Absolutely, and it took some incredible um, incredible people like Nell McCafferty and others um, really highlighting the deep, deep biases, the prejudices of that time. And I think this is something that it's a period in time that, you know, shocked and repulsed many people in Ireland, but I, th I think cut particularly deep um, for women in this country because it, it did give a real insight um, into the prejudices and deep, deep biases that existed at that time. And I certainly hope we're in a very different Ireland now. Now, let's move on to Garda recruitment because uh, the, this campaign is launching today. It, it promises to be fairly quick that if you apply today, you might be in Templemore when? So you'll be called for an interview in July. You could be in Templemore this year. Um, so the campaign opens today. Uh, myself and the Garda Commissioner are launching this campaign. We're asking people to apply uh, within three weeks. So the campaign opens now for three weeks. Anybody interested can go to publicjobs.ie. Uh, I suppose, as you'll know, for the last period of time, we've been putting a real active focus on growing Garda numbers. The college was closed during COVID. So trying to get things cranked back up and increase the number of Garda on our streets, keeping people safe and doing the impactful work that they do. It's a tough job. We're very clear on that, but it is a job worth doing. It's a job worth doing in terms of the impact that you can make. And we're asking people who want to help make their community safer, who want to help keep our country safe, who want to help bring truth and justice uh, to come forward. And we're also today as part of this campaign and uh, making a number of improvements to the recruitment system ourselves, um, increasing the capacity that the public appointment service has to carry out more interviews, issuing explainer videos so people can prepare for the fitness test, um, not in any way, in any way dumbing down vetting because it's absolutely vital that vetting is robust, but trying to start that earlier in the process so that we have all parts of the pipeline working and working well. Yeah, uh, I've seen the measures listed, advice on physical competency test uh, preparation, that uh, could be a video or whatever, yes. early online engagement with candidates, intensive communication and engagement strategy with candidates to optimise retention in the process. In other words, to try and eliminate obstacles that might not be serious obstacles, but put people off. Now, the implementation of a buddy scheme, hmm. how will that work? 
So basically, um, Annie Garda enters Temple more and wants to have, I suppose, a mentor and be kept in touch with another member of Angarda Shia The commissioner and his colleagues will be asking uh, those Gardaí to come forward. I, I suppose we have to be conscious of the fact that being a Gardaí is a tough and difficult job for all the reasons we've talked about now and before. And, you know, if you're a new member of, of indeed any organisation, but particularly if you're a new member of Angarda Shia or a trainee member, being able to, to talk to somebody, to talk things out with somebody and to have somebody that you can, you know, drop a text to, maybe meet up and have a cup of coffee with um, is of use. So the whole the whole aim of the t- commissioner's work here is to try and make sure that, as you say, the process is made as simple as possible and helping people get from filling out that application form on publicjobs.ie into a uniform and out in the streets in our communities is, is, is as seamless as yeah. possible. Now, straight away I can uh, detect there might be problems with buddies because when you have a rank and file and the AGSI given out saying morale is at rock bottom, it's on the floor, uh, we're not getting the money we think we deserve, our allowances are being cut by new rosters, uh, people are retiring early, this is no job you want to put your children into. Uh, you've got to find a buddy who doesn't agree with any of that. Well, look, I have huge respect for the representative bodies. I had meetings with them recently. I'll be attending the AXI conference on, on Monday week. But I also know, and I'm sure they would know and agree, that every day when they get out of bed and go to work, they make a real and meaningful difference in the lives of people right across our country. That's what impactful, meaningful work is about. We'll work with the representative bodies on a number of important issues. I very much welcome the fact that AXI has um, postponed a, a protest march they were due to have about rosters because the way you resolve disputes isn't by March and it's about by it's about talking, it's about getting into a room and trying to come up with solutions. That's a good step forward. It's also, though, about making sure that I bring about some of the changes I've committed to between now and the summer. Things like increasing the sentencing for somebody who assaults a member of Angarda Shiokana, making it clear that uh, that provision also includes the ramming of a guard vehicle, giving our guardy body cams, because I find it beyond ironic that the only people who turn up at a protest sometimes without a camera is the guard. We need to fix that. So there are concrete actions we can take to support the guardy and the work they're doing. But I'm not sitting here in, in the News Talk studio suggesting being a guard's an easy job. It's not. But I'm absolutely suggesting that it's a job worth doing uh, and we need more people to come and help us in our missions to build stronger, safer communities. Yeah, You see, it's one of those ironies. Uh, we have it with the doctors and, and nurses as well. They give out about their problems in A&E and overcrowding and not having enough staff. And the more they talk about it, the less attractive they make their career sound. Well, look, I, I, I believe in a democracy, people being able to put forward their views. I believe in robust exchanges, the role of the representative bodies, no issue with any of that. But I can also tell you and tell your listeners, there's a very healthy interest in becoming a member um, avant-garde Shia very very healthy and I expect this year we will get a thousand new recruits into Templemore I expect we will grow Garda numbers by the end of the year and I expect we will get to the figure of around 15,000 Garda by the end of 2024 that's what I'm working towards that's what the commission is working towards the best way to help Garda do their jobs is get them more colleagues get them more people in the car with them out in the beach with them working with them so we need we need to grow the numbers and I am confident from what we've seen that we're now back in an upward trend in terms of the size of classes in Templemore all right, and uh, hopefully that uh, recruitment process will advance uh, apace. Now, other things on uh, your agenda, uh, the whole question of transgender prisoners, and uh, there's one particular case, and we won't refer to it directly, but it brings to a fore the, to the fore the situation they found in Scotland. And this is where someone who is biologically male, but declaring themselves to be female by gender, ends up in a women's prison and may be a danger given their biological status and their track record may be a danger to the women around them. 
So without, as you've rightly done, without discussing the individual case in any way, shape or form, let me say this, because I met the Director General of the Irish Prison Service yesterday. I am absolutely satisfied as Minister for Justice that there is not a scenario where a violent sex offender who is a risk to other prisoners in a prison is mixing with that prison population. I mean, what our prison service does is risk assess um, this, and the safety, health and well-being of other prisoners and prison staff is of paramount concern. So that's the way it should be. They carry out individual risk assessments and sometimes perhaps there can be a narrative allowed to develop that would suggest um, that a prisoner is being put at risk by being exposed to a dangerous, violent, perhaps sexually violent um, other prisoner. And I can tell you that that is not currently the case in the Irish Prison Service. I can also tell you that the Irish Prison Service is currently working on finalising a policy in relation to transgender prisoners. It's looking at best international practice and I expect that to be completed um, in the next few weeks. Do you think it will require a change in our laws? So I, I actually don't know is the truthful answer. I'm not certain that it will. Um, I don't want to preempt that work because they are looking at what other countries have done and advising on best international practice. But it seems clear to me that the way they're addressing this matter at the moment is on the, a case-by-case basis risk assessing the safety uh, of prisoners, the prison estate uh, and prison staff and then making decisions in relation to how to safely accommodate a prisoner in those scenarios. Mm. But let me be clear, this not, not by you, but sometimes this narrative put out that there's somebody at large within the general prison population who poses a, a violent or sexual risk to other prisoners is not the case in the Irish Prison Service. Yeah, but you can anticipate someone who therefore is... Uh, remains in solitary confinement for the duration of their sentence would be rushing to the Court of Human Rights saying that they had a right to sociability or whatever you know and these uh, are all the issues that these are all it's the a issues. complex problem it is and they need, and that's why it's it does good. that's why it does merit a it does merit a policy it does measure, merit a proper framework it does merit looking at what other countries have done but right here and now the situation is as I've outlined um, and it, it, yes there's always a balance of rights but the absolute most important obligation that the Irish prison service have and that I have as minister for justice in terms of the prisons is making sure the safety of the prison population those who are imprisoned there and those who work there is not in any way, shape or form compromised. And that has to be the starting point um, in any discussion um, around the prison population. Now, the other thing that surfaced this week, which again will be uh, on your desk, uh, just one prosecution in four years for failing to produce a passport on arrival in Ireland. Now, we have all the caveats about people uh, maybe being trafficked and having their documents taken from them by ne'er-do-wells on the plane, who then take another plane back out of Dublin airport um, you know, it, the, the numbers would suggest there's more going on than that, that we are perhaps a, a bit of a soft touch. So we're not. And um, since I became Minister for Justice, I've taken a very active interest in this issue. And I think it's quite clear now that we have resumed things like uh, Garda checks at the foot of planes. We've resumed the process of Garda going abroad and working in other airports, liaising with other police authorities and air, airline staff. We have seen deportation orders resume um, which had been suspended for COVID my colleague Minister McEntee and I have seen to that we've seen an accelerated system of processing people quicker when they come into the country which by the way internationally is the key way you get uh, on top of this and have a functioning robust rules based and fair immigration system I've looked at the issue specifically in relation to passports and I know it's an issue you've covered um, on your on your programme but 
firstly, I'd have to put in the caveat, I suppose, arrests and prosecution are a matter for the guards and the DPP, but let's take that as read. Having said that, if somebody arrives in Ireland without an appropriate document who does not have a right to be here, the most appropriate thing, in my view, to happen to that person is for them to be put back on a plane and returned to their country, not necessarily prosecuted in Ireland. So if you arrive in Ireland and you don't seek international protection and you don't have legal documents, you're meant to be returned. So the idea that you'd actually say we're not... seek international protection? Well, if they isn't seek, that, isn't well, that the... Well, well they, they actually, know, they, they actually there, don't. There's yeah. TikTok videos mm. telling them how to do it, Minister. They're told this is what you do when you get to Ireland. You arrive, get rid of your documentations down the loo or whatever you do, fetch up at immigration and look for asylum, even though so there's two issues. you are in no way entitled to it. So there's two issues there. Firstly, if somebody comes and seeks international protection, you have to people have a legal human right under international European law to seek that. The system then has to process them. And my focus is on processing them much more quickly, particularly if you come from a so-called country of safe origin. And that is happening now. People are being given their date of an interview. People are having those interviews within two weeks on average. People are getting their decision within three months. And that is compared to something like 17 to 24 months just a year ago. So if somebody comes to a country and claims international protection, they do have a right to be assessed. And that's not just an Irish rule. It's not about Ireland being, to use your phrase, a soft touch. It's about international European rules. There are, though, people who arrive in the country and they don't have documentation. They don't claim international protection and they are returned and returned speedily to their country. That does happen. And the idea that in those scenarios, you'd actually say, well, instead of going back to your country because you don't have a right to be here, we're going to keep you in Ireland and prosecute you. It sounds to me to be to be odd because I think in those scenarios the most important thing is to speedily return somebody. There is also um, obviously as you know legislation and fines in relation to airlines um, who let people on a, on, a, on a plane without legal documentation and I actually don't have the figures in front of me but we've seen several hundred uh, fines issued in relation to airlines um, who, who yeah. do that as well. But you know when people arrive up with no documentation mm-hmm. If you had access or the state had access, immigration had access to what was shown to the airline to get on the plane, it would seem to me be a very simple thing. You, uh, you have a, a copy, a digital copy or a photocopy of whatever document was shown by that person to get on the plane. So no matter what they do with it, whether it's taken from them by a third party or not, at least you know what, how did they get on the plane. And that's a starting point, at least, in any investigation as to their provenance. Yeah, and there's a logic in that. And I don't want to get ahead of conversations that I'm having uh, both at a European level and indeed conversations that we're having with airlines. But I do think there's more that can be done and will be done in relation to that space. I mean, what we're currently doing is having Gardaí back abroad, working with other police authorities, working with airlines. Um, and that is, that is definitely helping. Um, And I think we're already seeing encouraging signs in relation to that helping this year. Of course, you've said, and I just need to say, because it is an important caveat, there are times when people fleeing persecution may not have access to legal documents. But I think you and I both accept that the the numbers arriving without documents indicates that that's not always the case, that there is a broader issue here uh, and an issue that does need to be addressed, will be addressed, is being addressed, uh, both through airlines being prosecuted, but also more importantly, through working much more closely with them and seeing how we can work more at a European level on this too. Uh, finally, Minister, uh, the general political question on foot of what happened in Doyle Aaron during the week and what is going to unfold next week in terms of the Sinn Féin uh, proposal on extending the eviction ban and the no-confidence vote uh, proposed by the Labour Party. Um, you're not out of the woods yet, and you know many people who might uh, otherwise support your party will be saying, uh, asking that fundamental question, what is to happen to ordinary, decent, rent-paying people who get turfed out on foot of the ending of the ban? 
well, what is absolutely to happen to them is to make sure that they can avail of the new measures that we have put in place over recent months to help support them in securing a house, whether that's seeing a very significant increase in local authority housing, the largest number of local authority houses built in our country since 1975, sorry, the large number of social houses, whether that's seeing local authorities now, not, not in six weeks time or a month's time, now having the ability to purchase your home if you are at risk of homelessness. These are new measures that are in place. So I don't accept the premise at all that is put forward by the opposition and um, that this is about lifting a temporary ban and actually leaving people in a vacuum. That is not the case. We also have to be honest and truthful with people. Um, we need to keep rental properties in the market. We need people to be able to access rental supply. We need to grow supply and we need to operate in the lines of the constitution and the law. And and that's where eviction bans on more than a temporary basis become extraordinarily difficult in a number of levels. So we are continuing to work on a daily basis on new measures. You saw more measures coming forward this week in terms of how we can broaden schemes to do up uh, vacant buildings, how we can change the law to allow somebody uh, have first refusal to buy a home, how we're working on what happens at a home if somebody's in a nursing home and it's vacant and they'd like to rent it out. So a whole variety of things. But the question politically, yeah. and, politically, and you, Dollar, I mean, as Minister for Justice, uh, will you be able to to allay Minister Butler's concerns for older people because people who have vested in other people, power of attorney, for example, you know, to protect uh, their assets and uh, indeed their own safety, uh, you know, from relatives who might not have best interests at heart. So obviously those sort of matters are a matter for the courts, but Minister Butler is, a, is an excellent uh, minister for older people. And what she's rightly saying is that she wants to make sure that all these issues are teased through so that a system put in place is operable. She's already, as minister, seen significant progress in making it easier for somebody who is in a nursing home, rent out their home. But I meet constituents in Wicklow um, and I meet them in my clinics who perhaps their, their mum or their dad is in a nursing home and their mum or their dad would like to be able to rent out the home. Um, you know, homes can go, can, can, you know, they actually cost money to put into a house to leave it vacant. They want to actually be able to rent out the home, but they want it to be worth their while. Um, and I instinctively want to be able to support them do that. I think it's important for them. It is their home. We should be able to help them do as they wish with it. Um, and also we do have a serious housing supply constraint. So I think these are sensible ideas that need to be teased through. Hmm. Minister Simon Harris, thank you very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9 a.m. on News Talk.